at this point, you may be curious about what causes anxiety. We know from scientific research that anxiety is caused by a combination of factors related both to nature, the genetics that you inherit from your family, and nurture, the experiences that you encounter in your environment. But in general, risk factors for anxiety include having biological relatives, particularly those with anxiety, having relatives, not in and of itself, <laughs> having relatives, <laughs> maybe that does too, we haven't tested that yet. <laughs> I don't think we need to, honestly. <laughs> Uh, having relatives with anxiety particularly or with any mental illness generally. So compared to people who have relatives that do not have mental health issues, those who have relatives with mental health issues are going to be relatively at greater risk of actually any mental illness, but anxiety specifically. Having an early timid temperament with strong reactions to novelty. So what I mean here is if as a child you are um, reluctant or shy, if new experiences are threatening, you may start to learn avoidance behaviors even as a child, which then can manifest in anxiety disorders in childhood or adulthood. Being exposed to adversity or trauma is a risk factor for developing an anxiety disorder. And there are some physical health conditions, particularly some heart conditions and some um, uh, thyroid conditions. Also, okay, good. Also, um, caffeine. I'm going to mention caffeine here, even though I'm going to become wildly unpopular <laughs> what I'm about to say. If you have anxiety, I would urge you to seriously consider cutting out caffeine. You may need to wean yourself, if you, uh, depending on how much caffeine you currently use, to avoid withdrawal, depending on how tolerant you are. But um, caffeine is not doing you any favors if you have anxiety. Um, even if you were to reduce your caffeine consumption by either drinking fewer cups of coffee or switching to decaf or switching to herbal teas, you'll be doing your nervous system a favor and reducing its load. So just think about it. I'm just introducing that as something to consider. Some people wonder if scary events cause their anxiety or if their anxiety in and of, them, in and of itself is what causes them to more readily see things as scary. So we know from scientific research on anxiety that actually both are true. Events and stress in our lives can create more anxiety, and the brain can learn to be afraid of almost anything. So it's really important to be aware of your personal anxiety triggers. Some of those are obvious. Other times you might need a professional to help you identify what is triggering your anxiety. I want to pause here just to acknowledge the enduring stress that we have all faced over the past few years. These are just some examples in no particular order. I just kind of made a list of everything that's been happening that we've all been dealing with. Many of us are exhausted because we've been exposed to a barrage of crises, one after the other, consecutively, in a row, seemingly unending. We've been inundated with bad news, and vicarious trauma is real. Vicarious trauma is... Uh, if you don't know what that means, that's when, when we bear witness to trauma, even if we're not experiencing it ourselves, we take on the burden of that, not entirely, but some of it. And that depletes our bandwidth and our reserve for dealing with our own stressors in our own lives. Our fight or flight response was hardwired to recruit all of our resources, and many of us feel like we really just don't have a lot of resources left to give at this point. So if you're feeling tired and worn, I just want to say that is actually a reasonable response to what has been happening in the world. It's why we grieve, and it's why we put our hope in Jesus. So I just want to acknowledge that we've all been through a hard time. Um, let's talk about how anxiety is different than stress. 
Everyone experiences stress from time to time in a fallen world. That is unavoidable. Most people can identify with at least passing anxiety or transient worry. About one in three people will experience clinically significant anxiety in their lifetime. So I'm talking about a diagnosable anxiety disorder. That's a really high, that's like the highest rate of mental health conditions. So anxiety is really common. I think Holly said, like, if you think you don't know someone with anxiety, you're wrong. You, you do. In this room, I don't know how many people are here tonight, but, well, there's just a lot of people here, so what I'll say, that are probably experiencing some kind of anxiety at some point in their lives. Um, clinically significant diagnosable anxiety is different because it happens more frequently. When it happens, it's more intense than a stress reaction. It lasts longer, and the impairment is greater. So stress is a response to an external cause. You could think about having an upcoming test, maybe if you're the students back there. Uh, if you have a test, you are stressed often about that test, if you care about the outcome, if you're worried about it. Um, stress goes away when the situation resolves. So once the test is over, the stress is over. It can be positive because it can cause you to study for the test, or it can be negative because it can cause you to lose sleep over the test. Anxiety is different because that's an internal feeling that's a reaction to unmanaged stress. It's usually a persistent feeling of apprehension or dread. It doesn't go away when the situation resolves itself, and it interferes with daily life. It can feel constant even in the absence of an immediate observable threat. Some of you asked in registration how anxiety differs from depression, so let's address that briefly. We've talked a lot about what characterizes anxiety, nervousness, worry, dread, feeling overwhelmed, feeling like things are out of control. Depression has a different tone. It's marked sometimes by sadness, but other times by just a blunted sense of emotion, feeling numb or feeling empty or feeling like you just can't really feel and you aren't really interested in anything, specifically things that you might normally enjoy. Anxiety and depression share a lot of common symptoms. Both can make you feel agitated or restless, irritable, stressed, fatigued. Both can cause changes in appetite and concentration. Both can leave you feeling defeated or hopeless. Um, therapists sometimes think of anxiety and depression as two sides of the same coin. Because they're so similar or have so many uh, symptoms in common, they also can commonly occur together and they can also worsen one worsening the other. So anxiety can worsen depression and vice versa. Um, again, because of that similarity, they also have similar treatments, which we'll talk about later. We can talk about different kinds of anxiety disorders. You've likely heard of most of these. I've already talked about panic attacks a few times in the talk tonight. Panic attacks, if you're not familiar with them, are really acute and distressing events that come on suddenly, generally for no discernible reason. They peak quickly, they really unnerve you, and they can be difficult to recover from. And they, because of that, they can lead to other forms of anxiety or avoidant behavior like agoraphobia, which is the fear of being in public when a panic attack could occur. Panic attacks are really the most apparent display of our body's natural fight-or-flight response. You've maybe heard of obsessive-compulsive disorder, which can be a more enduring set of symptoms that are often very impairing and often involve intrusive thoughts and behaviors that are designed to reduce the anxiety that accompanies the thoughts, but actually often inadvertently reinforce the fear. You may have heard of generalized anxiety disorder, which is characterized by chronic worrying and can be as debilitating as OCD, and like OCD, can also be enduring, but is less acute than panic disorder. It can involve symptoms similar to panic. 
Social anxiety disorder or social phobia is triggered by performances or social events or situations with people where there's a fear of criticism or judgment by others, fear of man. Uh, really extreme fear of man. Um, people may also have specific phobias. You've heard about people being afraid of flying or having a fear of heights or having a fear of spiders, those sorts of things. And finally, you're probably familiar with post-traumatic stress disorder, which can result from exposure to a traumatic event or situation. The differences between these disorders are primarily in the context in which they're triggered and the intensity of the response. Okay, let's talk about how anxiety is treated. As far as evidence-based treatments, again, those are um, treatments that have demonstrated effectiveness in clinical studies. For anxiety disorders, we're generally talking about cognitive behavioral therapy, which you may have heard of referred to as CBT, exposure therapy, which is a type of behavior therapy, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, EMDR, and various medications. Uh, so we'll start with cognitive behavioral therapy. Cognitive distortions are the main target of CBT, which is an action-oriented type talk therapy that teaches you to recognize and correct negative thinking patterns. Part of CBT involves accepting that not all your thoughts are true just because you have them, and reframing your thoughts to better, more realistic thoughts that represent reality uh, can be more helpful to you. Cognitive distortions push us to believe thoughts that aren't true, so CBT helps you to work to get into the habit of asking yourself, what is the evidence for this thought? What proof do I have for this thought? Is this helpful? When negative or anxiety-inducing thoughts are repeatedly reinforced, your brain actually develops shortcuts, like sort of like neural superhighways, uh, where these negative thoughts become automatic. And through CBT, you can learn to remap your brain networks. You can actually see this in brain imaging. You can create new neural pathways to create new thinking patterns that will positively affect your anxiety, mood, and sleep. Um, so you might ask, why can't you just stop having anxious thoughts? <laughs> Lots of people ask me how to keep anxious thoughts at bay, how to keep them from entering their minds. Therapists used to recommend a technique called thought stopping, but it's, it's kind of fallen out of favor because of evidence that it really didn't work in the long run. Uh, and that's because if I tell you not to think about white bears, which is what psychologist Daniel Wegner did in a study, what is the first thing that came to mind when I said that? <laughs> white bears. Dr. Wegner found that a person who's asked to think aloud while not while trying not to think about a white bear, will typically mention the bear about once a minute. And in that study, they had different groups of people. They had people they told, don't think about a white bear, and they had people they said, go ahead and think about a white bear. <laughs> Why? I don't know. But um, So in the second phase of the study, the participants who were initially asked not to think about white bears were then told that they could think about white bears, and they reported more thoughts about white bears than the participants who'd been told that they could think about white bears all along. So what that tells us is that there's a rebound effect, that suppressing your thoughts doesn't help. When you say, I'm not going to think about that, you're actually creating a situation where you're going to be more prone to think about it. And even if you manage to not think about white bears temporarily, another part of your brain is having to monitor whether you are or are not thinking about white bears. <laughs> So you're just burdening your mind even further. So we know it's discouraging to tell people not to think about negative thoughts, so we don't recommend that anymore. Except in situations, for example, 
when you need to attend to something else that's important. So we don't often have the luxury of worrying all the time because we have things that need to get done. So that's not really thought stopping, that's sort of thought postponement or deferred worrying. You can say, I can't worry about this now because I have to get this done, but I'm gonna set aside a time later to worry. And then you can do that and you should do that when you're in the best shape to worry constructively if you must. And what I mean by that is not at the end of the day when you're exhausted right before you're trying to go to bed. <laughs> Spoiler alert, not the time to worry. But what you can do, what, what can you do instead of thought stopping? You can practice acceptance. It's very hard, but you can practice radical acceptance. And to do that, you identify your thoughts, you become more familiar with your thought life, and then you might tell yourself when you notice a negative automatic thought, that's an intrusive thought. I, I don't want to have this thought, but it's just a thought. Thoughts are not facts. You can remind yourself that thoughts don't actually have power over you unless you let them. And again, this is about changing your relationship to anxiety. So you don't try to stop the thought, you let it pass by. It might be helpful to think of it as like a thought bubble, like in the little cartoons. You can just let that bubble drift away. You don't, you don't want to engage with it, you don't want to capture it, you just let it go. This is a time, again, when doing that breath work is helpful. Also, focused distraction is helpful. If you're really prone to worry, you can journal about it. Again, don't do this right before bed. But sometimes writing out your thoughts frees up some of the real estate that they're occupying in your brain. And some people have to adopt a daily writing practice, a ritual of doing that. Other people might only need to do that occasionally. But writing, like prayer, can guide you to the root of whatever's causing the anxiety. So let's talk about exposure therapy. Exposure therapy is another evidence-based treatment for anxiety disorders. And to understand how this works, it's important to understand the anxiety cycle. So I'm going to use dogs for this example because I think it's relatable. So let's imagine that you're exposed to a dog and let's suppose that you've never encountered one before. You can interpret that stimuli in one of two ways. You can think, cute, fun, it's like a big stuffed animal. Or you might think, that has sharp teeth and it might bite me. You can either experience the dog as potentially safe or potentially dangerous. For the purposes of this example, we're gonna, we're gonna take option two, this is dangerous. So let's imagine that you encounter a dog and you run away. When you avoid the dog and you escape and survive, your brain experiences relief and it concludes, whew, we escaped. I'm gonna do that again. I'm gonna increase anxiety in response to encountering a dog. And then each time you avoid a dog and survive, that neural pathway is reinforced. So avoidance then feeds the anxiety, which increases and is reinforced by the escape, and you get caught in a cycle. There are two ways to break that cycle. First, through changing your thoughts with CBT, like we just talked about, and second, through gradual exposure. If you expose yourself to a threat that's not really dangerous and you survive, your brain does the exact same thing. It concludes, it experiences relief and it concludes, I'll do that again. And then through repeated gradual exposure, you can decrease your anxiety and you can forge a new neural pathway. That is a gross oversimplification of what is actually a very delicate process. You have to very gradually through baby, teeny, tiny steps, create a hierarchy of events that you'll expose yourself to and then work your way through them. So, First, you shore up your coping skills because you never expose someone to a stressful situation without giving them a way to manage and cope with that. Once you're sure that someone's ready to, to deal with that, 
you start with the least threatening situation. So when you're ready to start, for example, with this dog situation, you might start by having someone look at images of dogs and just asking them to stay in the anxiety that they're feeling. So you've given them the coping resources. You say, we're going to look at images on the internet of dogs. You're going to breathe through them. We're going to talk about this. And we're going to stay in this for 10 minutes or five minutes or whatever is reasonable. Or we're going to stay in this until your anxiety moves from a five on that one to five scale to a four. And you keep doing that you, until they start to be able to cope with looking at images of dogs. And then you might work up to looking at a dog through a window for a period of time and eventually being in the same room as a small dog that's on a leash or in a kennel. And then eventually getting nearer to and petting the dog. Maybe it has a muzzle on. And then being able to tolerate sitting at a dog park where some dogs are off leash. And you get the picture. You're just, this is taking place over a long period of time. This is not like in days or weeks even. Um, but what you're doing is the person is then able to change their relationship to the anxiety. They have to change their rule from, I'm going to avoid dogs at all costs, to I'm going to allow myself to do something that's uncomfortable for this many minutes or for this duration and, or until my anxiety moves from a five to a four. And what you learn through that is that you can manage that. So it sounds simple. It's actually a pretty straightforward procedure, but it, is, it takes a lot of courage. It's difficult work, but it does work. I'm only going to talk very briefly about EMDR because, uh, one, I'm running out of time. And also, um, the reason I included it here is because it's something that you might encounter, and it's a little controversial because it's a unique approach, and we don't really have a great understanding of how it works. But that's actually true of several psychiatric medications and other psychiatric treatments. We know they work. We're not entirely sure of all the mechanisms that cause them to work. So EMDR is an evidence-based treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, it involves identifying and choosing an, an upsetting memory that's referred to as a target to focus on during therapy. And the target includes the negative thoughts, the feelings, the bodily sensations that are all triggered by the memory. And the client holds that memory in their mind while also paying attention to back and forth movement or a sensation or a sound. It could be the therapist's finger moving. It could be a tapping. Um, they're processing the emotions that are uh, partnered with that memory. And, and you continue that as at, at, at small intervals until the person has their distress recedes and, cog and positive emotions are reported. And then at the end of the processing, the client focuses on a per personal positive belief while holding that memory in mind and paying attention again to the movements or the tapping. And what it's intended to do is change the way that the memory is stored in the brain, which then reduces and eliminates the more problematic symptoms. So because it has that like kind of novel, like tapping and moving, it's something that people kind of think like that's weird. And so that's why I'm mentioning it. There is evidence for it. And if you come across it, just wanted you to be aware of that. Um, finally, we should talk about medications for anxiety disorders. Generally, medications prescribed for anxiety belong to the antidepressant class, there are a few different types, or the benzodiazepine class. So even though they're called antidepressants, many antidepressants have really beneficial effects for anxiety treatment, so you don't be hung up by the name. Again, you think about anxiety and depression as two sides of the coin. Um, neither of these medication classes are a cure for anxiety, and neither may be effective long-term without therapy that under that addresses the underlying root cause of the anxiety disorder. 
Benzodiazepines are the most widely prescribed medications for anxiety. You would recognize the names probably. These are drugs like Xanax, Klonopin, Valium, Ativan. These are fast-acting and are really meant to be used short-term, but many people are prescribed them for many years. They can be habit-forming, and they can cause sedation and respiratory depression, particularly when they're combined with alcohol or medications like opioids. So you do have to be really careful with them. They're also commonly diverted, meaning you should keep them secured so that they're not stolen, including by kids and including your own or other people's kids who might be in your house. And you would not be want, want to be responsible for them being shared or sold. Antidepressants have fewer risks, but the downside is they actually take longer. So the benzodiazepines work immediately. The, benzo the antidepressants have to build up in your system, typically for four to eight weeks before you're going to notice real durable benefits from them. Um, so they're not taken as needed like the benzodiazepines. And you don't want to abruptly stop them because you'll feel sick if you do. So there's trade-offs. This is something to think about. There's trade-offs with these medications. The antidepressants are medications like Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil, Lexapro, and Celexa. You might recognize some of those names. Those are the ones that are commonly used for anxiety. They're safe medications. They can be effective for some people. As with any medication, you want to be open-minded. You want to talk to your doctor about the risks and benefits for you particularly, not just you know, population-level risks and benefits, but what, what does that matter for you? And you want to talk about your own values with regard to medication use, and you want to consider supportive psychotherapy with medication. The bottom line is there is a time and a place for anxiety medication. If you have severe anxiety, if it's interfering with your ability to function, medication can be really helpful, especially as a short-term treatment that can help get you to the behavioral or cognitive behavioral therapy where you can learn to address the underlying root causes. Okay, we've covered a lot. Let's talk about one next step that you can take tonight or tomorrow to manage your own anxiety or to help a loved one. I read an acronym on a coffee mug that said something like, stress stands for stuff to remember every single second. And for some of us, that is a life motto. <laughs> so I'm sharing an alternative acronym, GREATS, because these are simple interventions that, if practiced routinely, will reduce anxiety and stress. So the G stands for gratitude. If you're not already in the habit of doing a gratitude practice, please consider it. It is such a low-key intervention, and there's a growing body of research that demonstrates that gratitude has measurable benefits for just about every area of our lives. And that should make sense to those of us who are Christians. Gratitude is about two things. One, recognizing the good gifts that you've received, and two, acknowledging that the source of the good gifts is outside of yourself. And if you're a Christian, that you understand that they come from a good giver. Practicing gratitude has measurable effects on that parasympathetic nervous system response, that off switch I talked about earlier. So I urge you to pray with gratitude and meditate on gratitude. The R stands for relaxation. Make it a priority. That is all I'm going to say about that. This is my prescription to each of you. Find a way to find peace, even if it's for 10 minutes, even if it's locked in the bathroom or hiding in the pantry. But use that time well. Don't scroll through social media. Don't zone out. But actually take that time to practice the breath work that you learned tonight, to practice gratitude, to practice a meditation, to pray, or to rest. The E should remind you to exercise. The benefits of exercise for anxiety management are profound. This does not need to be intense exercise, though it can be if that's what calms and settles you. This can be gentle stretching, can be yoga, can be walking outside, can be strength training, really honestly anything that helps you clear your mind, 
find strength, and restore balance. The A is an encouragement to acknowledge your feelings. Remember that avoidance feeds anxiety. So if you're someone who avoids to cope, then it's time to learn some new coping strategies and to begin to allow yourself to identify feelings and observe them and actually feel them and learn to let them pass without overtaking you. And some of you might need guidance from a professional to be able to do that, and you might need support. One way to observe feelings is to observe your thoughts and track them. So the T stands for tracking thoughts. Writing down your thoughts and examining them, what triggers them. I put an acronym within an acronym here. <laughs> think, it reminds you to think, are my thoughts truthful? Are they helpful? Are they insightful? Are they necessary? Are they kind? Uh, it can be really helpful to ask someone to examine your thoughts with you or to ask yourself what you would think about your thoughts if they were your friend's thoughts. Like, would you ever say the things that you say to yourself to your friend or your child or your younger self? That can be a really compelling thing to think about. So definitely examine your thought life and track your thoughts. And finally, the S is for sleep. Sleep raises all ships in the harbor. Do you know that expression? That's, I just was watching Aunt and with an E on Netflix with my daughter, and, and that expression came up. I think uh, it's an economic policy expression. I think usually they say, a rising tide floats all boats. It means an improved economy helps everyone and everything, and the same can be said for sleep. Improved sleep helps everyone and everything. So I am going to talk a little bit about sleep hygiene because it's probably the single most important thing you can do to manage your mental health, anxiety, or otherwise. Prioritize your sleep. Set a consistent sleep-wake schedule that makes sense for you, that, that honors your sleep-wake cycle and your life rhythms. Commit to it. I'm um, going to say it one more time. <laughs> Avoid caffeine at least within 8 to 10 hours of bedtime. 12 to 14 would be even better. Also, no judgment, but drinking alcohol, almost any amount will have detrimental effects on your sleep, so that's just something, something to consider. Uh, avoid bright lights and screens, particularly from 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. Limit naps to less than 90 minutes or don't nap at all. Some of you are like, a 90-minute nap? Are you kidding me? <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> don't push through sleepiness at night. So if you are feeling tired and you haven't finished all your things, um, it's probably in your best interest to go to sleep and not finish all your things. Pushing through sleep is one of the reasons that people wake up at 3 a.m. and can't go back to sleep. So don't push through sleepiness. Go to bed when you're tired. Uh, keep your room dark. Wear an eye mask if you need to. Um, the ideal temperature of your bedroom should be around 60 degrees. You should layer on blankets that you can remove, particularly if you're at a stage in life where you might get warmer suddenly in the middle of the night. Um, your bed should be used only for sleep and maybe one, well, definitely one other activity if you're married. <laughs> um, view sunlight. This is really important. Even if it's overcast, like it is most of the time here, going outside within 30 minutes to an hour of when you wake up, especially if you can do that before 10 a.m., literally for two minutes will make a difference. But if you can do it for 10, that's even better. And even more on cloudy days, you don't need, you shouldn't wear sunglasses and you don't need to look directly at the sun, but you're trying to get indirect light, which actually really strongly affects your circadian rhythm. I could do a whole talk on sleep, so I'm going to stop there. Um, but these are some general wellness strategies that have 
Everything I just mentioned has demonstrated effectiveness for managing anxiety. So this is not just me up here giving you a wellness talk. These are things that are actually shown to help reduce anxiety and improve mood. I have one other idea. This is based on an intervention called a worry box, where you write down your worries and you put them in a box. And that helps to externalize them. But you can take it a step further if you want to hold yourself accountable to trusting in the Lord. So if you're prone to worry and you find yourself really perseverating on a particular worry, you might think about trying this. I want you to find a box or a jar and write your worry on a piece of paper and fold it up. And I want you to pray with your worry. God, I'm casting my cares on you. I know that you're sovereign over all things. I know that you already know how this turns out. I know that you delight in me and that you want good for me, and I know that you work all things for the good of those who love you. I know that I can trust you no matter how this turns out, and so I'm giving this worry over to you. And put the worry in the jar and walk away and move on with your day. And this is the part that's hard. Later, when you're tempted to worry again about that same worry, you have to physically go back and take that worry out of the jar and say, God, I'm going to take back what I gave you. I'm not ready to trust this to you. The good news is that Scripture tells us that we can take anything to God, that we should be anxious about nothing and pray about everything, and that there's a peace that we cannot understand but he can give. So the goal here is that by having to take your worry back, which might honestly reflect where you are, it at least gives you a pause to consider, again, trusting the Lord with your cares and leaning on him. You should not use this as an exercise to make yourself feel guilty or to shame yourself. We're not about shame. This is just an exercise that will help you to have a pause to think about trusting the Lord. Another thing I find personally very comforting is to keep a note in my phone because I almost always have my phone with me and I actually have a couple of these that I can quickly reach for when I'm anxious. One is a list of God's attributes and I just pray them and meditate on them. I just pray when I'm feeling really overwhelmed I just pray like Father God you are faithful, you are loving, you're all-powerful, you're the great physician, you're holy, you're patient. I just keep praying these truths over myself and even though my situation doesn't change, my relationship to the situation changes because my posture changes, and I remember who I am and who he is. I have another note called trials, where I just add prayers and scripture that I revisit whenever I need to, when I or someone I care about is suffering, and these just help me shift my mindset and, again, shift my relationship to anxiety. So those are some practical ideas that some of you might find useful for yourself or for helping another person who's dealing with anxiety. And while we're talking about other people, in case you're here for someone else and maybe wondering how to support them, pray faithfully. Ask them how you can support them because it will look differently for everyone. You can ask, this is a really easy one, three H's. Do you want help? Do you want a hug? Or do you want to be heard? And let them tell you what they need. Show up, check in, gently encourage Give reassurance, but not excessively if that's part of the problem. You have to be a little bit sensitive to that. Hold space and remind them of the truth. Obviously, don't shame them. And just try to understand, even if you've never experienced it yourself, that living with anxiety is exhausting. So just be there to care for them. Um, now, how would you know if you or someone you love needs professional help? 
If anxiety symptoms have been consistent for more than two weeks, that's a pretty low threshold, but this is actually the diagnostic threshold. More than two weeks, particularly if there's not an ongoing stressor that you can directly attribute them to, and particularly if they're impairing daily life. So they're causing significant avoidance, they're causing significant distress or impairment. Then you should talk to your doctor and your doctor can refer you to a mental health professional if that's necessary. And a lot of primary care doctors now have behavioral health care providers embedded in their practice who often can, they can hand off to. Uh, let's talk about how to choose a therapist. Not all therapists are the same and not all therapists are a fit for all people. So let me say this first. This is something that I am always happy to help with. I don't have a Rolodex of Christian therapists. I know that's disappointing. It's disappointing to me too. If I, I wish I did. But if you want to find a therapist and you find that overwhelming and in fact it's keeping you from pursuing that, I can help you to identify your goals and values and to try to find a match. And that's not something that you need to do alone. So please reach out. You should also consider your health insurance. Your health plan may have a provider network or they may re reimburse out-of-network providers, but you need to find out. You also need to find out if you'll have a copay and what that will be, if there are a limited number of sessions that you can take advantage of. If you're paying out of pocket, you wanna find out if the therapist has what's called a sliding fee scale, which means that when you have less ability to pay, they charge less, and as you're able to pay more, they charge more. And some therapists reserve a certain number of their sessions or their slots to help people who need a sliding fee scale. Um, you can search therapy databases. There are some here on the slide. I'm not necessarily endorsing these, but these are just easy ones to access that most of these, in fact, I think all of these have search parameters, so you can put in things that are um, preferences of yours. You wanna think about your goals ahead of time. Am I interested in medication or is that off the table? Do I want to focus on the cognitive aspects, the emotional aspects, the relationship aspects of this issue? Do I want someone to teach me some skills? Do I want to talk about trauma? Do I want to talk about my childhood? How far back do I want to go? Do I want to do this individually, one-on-one -on -one with someone? Should I, am I interested in having group support? These are all things to just be thinking about. Be open to evidence-based interventions, even if you're not familiar with them. And when you're talking with therapists, find out what treatments they're using and find out whether there are evidence for them. You can do your own research and you can ask questions of the therapist. And speaking of that, there should be a slide with some questions to ask. So this is just a brainstorm of things that you might ask if you were interviewing a therapist. So when you, if you choose to try, to try therapy, um, you have choices and you can interview people and you can use those you can use questions like these to help you make up your mind. So one question you might ask is, are you a licensed psychologist or counselor in the state? Um, licensed providers not only are expected to use evidence-based treatments, but they also are beholden to ethics codes that keep them accountable in theory. Um, so if you're not seeing a licensed professional, you should know that. License, licensing is there to, it exists to protect the consumer. How many years have you been in practice? What do you consider to be your area of expertise or your specialty? And I put beware on here because if you're looking at therapists online and they have a page long list of all the things they specialize in, that should probably be a warning to you um, because you can't be an expert in everything. So you're looking for someone who is, has a specialty and treats patients with, with whatever unique um, situation you're in, whatever your issue is anxiety or depression or whatnot. 
Um, you want to find out what experience do you have treating someone with my issue? How do you usually treat someone with my issue? How long do you expect treatment to last? How soon before I could expect to start feeling better? Do you accept my insurance? Will I need to pay you and be reimbursed or will you bill my insurance directly? What are your fees? If I need medication, can you prescribe or do you have a relationship with someone who could prescribe? Can you have a relationship with my primary care provider if they're the one who prescribes my medication? Do you do telehealth or virtual visits? Do you do in-person visits? How might I expect to see you? And what will we do if the treatment or the treatment plan isn't working? And then once you select a psychologist or therapist, you want to pay attention to your own responses to them. You should feel comfortable, you should feel heard, you should feel respected even if they have a different worldview. They should start and end on time, they should be curious, they should listen and not interrupt you, and they should be your guide. You are the expert in what's happening with you and they should be guiding you through treatment. Okay. Uh, we're going to talk about some resources here at Henson for those of you who are members here. Holly mentioned these. We are launching some little micro groups that you can sign up for tonight to work through a devotional called Knowing God's Peace, if you're interested in that. We're also going to be hosting some debrief desserts where you can sign up to process some of what you heard tonight with other people who are interested in talking more about this and enjoy dessert. That's great. Um, and if you are in a small group here at Henson, we, I would encourage you to take back, if you're comfortable, take back something that you learned here and use that to initiate more conversation around how we manage and take care of one another. Um, and then you can always contact the church office with confidential prayer requests. So those are some resources within Henson. This next slide is a list of resources outside of Henson. So this has... Um, you're going to get these. I don't think we have them ready tonight, but if you come back um, next week, we'll have a, a resource packet. But this is a list of, you know, there's a website for how to find a therapist, much of the questions that we just discussed. Um, there's a couple of local anxiety clinics on this list where I know the founders of them. I know they're doing evidence-based treatment, um, so I can endorse that. Um, there's also a couple cert local search engines here for finding a therapist in Portland. NAMI Multnomah is the Multnomah County chapter of the National Alliance for Mental Illness, which provides outstanding support to people with mental health issues and their families. NIMH, the National Institute of Mental Health, has a lot of resources online about different mental health issues. And 988, I'm just using this as an opportunity to bring everyone's awareness to this, 988 is the new 911 for suicide crises. So you can still call 911, but if you are having suicidal thoughts or someone that you care about is, you can call 988 and be connected directly to someone who can talk with them about those thoughts. So in summary, and we're actually going to end on time. <laughs> I didn't think we were earlier. Um, so symptom, ugh, symptoms of anxiety are functional and necessary for survival. Some amount of stress motivates performance, but anxiety becomes a problem when symptoms exceed the actual threat or interfere with your daily life. Anxiety is not dangerous. It is uncomfortable. When fight or flight is triggered, the body's goal is to return to calm, and the process is programmed to last only about 10 minutes, and you can influence that process. It's important to understand your anxiety triggers and responses, and sometimes a professional can help with that. And just remi reminding you to remember that acronym, GREATS. Okay, we're going to do one more exercise because we have time. We're going to do a meditation. 
Meditation is a useful tool for calming anxiety and stress and helping you to relax and refocus and bring you to the here and now. So we'll do a brief meditation to connect to the present moment. Take a few seconds again to get comfortable in your chair. Keep your back straight against your chair back unless, unless your back injury prevents that. Remember to try to stay relaxed. Keep your feet planted to the ground. And again, if you like, you can close your eyes. Maybe we could dim the lights a little bit. Can we do that? Um, if you don't want to close your eyes, you can just rest your eyes on a particular spot on the table or in your hands in your lap. And go ahead. I'm going to slow down my speaking now. <laughs> go ahead and take a deep breath in and hold it and release. And take one more deep breath in through your nose. Focus on the sensation of the air passing through your nose and into your body. Feel the movement in your chest. Feel the movement in your belly as you breathe. Gently inhaling and exhaling. Focus on the calmness of the space around you and the near quietness of this room. Try to be present in this moment. Relax your muscles as you continue to breathe. Try to notice any tension that you might be holding in your body. Tension in your jaw, in your neck, in your shoulders. Tension in your hands or feet. And just try to relax those areas of your body. And as you continue to breathe slowly in and out, notice how your body feels in your chair. Notice what you're feeling as your body is resting in that space. Notice the pressure on different parts of your body, maybe the back of the chair on your back. There's no particular way to be right now. Just notice how you are in this moment. If you notice physical discomfort or distressing thoughts, simply allow them to be. Let them come and go. Be open to any sensations or feelings or thoughts that you might be experiencing and know that they're going to come and then they're going to pass. Continue to breathe and focus on any physical sensations. Can you feel the air around you? Can you feel the temperature of the air? Do you feel it on your skin? Does the air feel still? Imagine yourself as light as the air. Just allow your body to relax. What do you hear? Pay attention to the sounds around you. Let the sounds come and go as they please. And now let's shift your attention and awareness to your emotions. How would you describe what you're feeling right now? Are you happy? Do you feel content? Are you sad? Are you irritated? Are you bored? Are you not sure what you're experiencing? 
Try to be aware of your emotional experience and just allow it to be. Whatever emotion you're experiencing is fine. It's okay. Refocus on your breathing. Go ahead and inhale again and hold. And release. Focus on the air moving in and out of your body. Let any sounds, thoughts, and feelings come and go as they occur. Notice and acknowledge them and let them leave. And then when you're ready, bring yourself back to the physical space that we're in here. Open your eyes and take a few more deep breaths in and out. And then just take note of how you're feeling. And remember that you can use this exercise or any of the breathing exercises that we already practiced whenever you feel like you need to take a break. And you can see that only took a few minutes to do. You can integrate breaks throughout your day and use a relaxation tool to help calm yourself and to refocus yourself to the present moment.